Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Petit of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Jonathan Ward. Dr. Ward has a doctorate in Chinese studies from Oxford and in the past has served as a consultant uh, for the American Defense Department. Today we are speaking about his book, China's Vision of Victory and Why America Must Win. Welcome, Dr. Ward. Good morning, Charles. It's good to be here. Dr. Ward, what is the genesis of your book? My book is, in a way, the result of 10 years of study in China. Um, When I was a 22-year-old long ago, um, I I rode a bicycle across China. I hitchhiked through Xinjiang and Tibet, um, you know, got to know the country through its people, you know, got to know the language. Um, and spent a further 10 years learning about China all around the world and other regions I was traveling in, wound up doing my PhD um, at Oxford in China-India relations, and then came back to America to found a consultancy, and my first project was for the Pentagon. So, um, you know, I've been, I've been looking at this problem for quite a long time, i.e., what does it mean for China to, to rise, not just in terms of wealth, but also in terms of power? And in the end, what is the vision that they would have um, if they were to achieve their goals, as I got to know what their goals really are through primary documents as a student, through travels in the country, and through investigative work as a consultant. And in the end, I realized that what this really amounts to is a vision of an entirely different world order, one that would place China firmly at the center um, of you know, economic power, strategic power, and that would bring about nothing short of a Chinese century. Um, and as somebody put it to my supervisor at Oxford, the British had their turn, um, America had its turn, and now is China's turn. And then what that really means for us, of course, because this is not a democracy, um, this is not a country that holds, you know, under its current system, the ideals of the United States or other free nations. And essentially, you, you would have um, history's most powerful dictatorship asserting power all across the earth. And we have to understand that it's a global vision and a global strategy. It's not just in China's region that they see themselves um, exerting power in the future. So I felt like all of this, as I got deeper and deeper into the documentation and the evidence and sort of pulling the pieces together, it just had to be shared um, with America and with the rest of the world. And, you know, there is a turning point now, and I think the historical moment that we're living through today is a turning point in U.S.-China relations, whether it's the trade war or Huawei or other news items that all essentially add up to, to an awakening in the United States, at least in the strategic community at present, as to the problem that we're going to face with China and that it's a long-term competition. Um, but I think it's very important that this is widely understood, um, not only among specialists and professionals, but also among the public. And that is part of why I wrote the book. It gives a whole lot of information, but it's meant to be readable um, and accessible and understood. You're right at the beginning of your book, uh, that quote, the building of a superpower and the restoration, uh, as China's leaders see it, of China's position of supremacy among all nations, unquote. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that concretely? What I mean is it, the idea of restoration, I mean, the way that China's leaders see this is that this isn't a rise of China, it's the return of China, and that China was humiliated. There's a narrative that the Communist Party has promoted for you know, some decades now, it says that China experienced humiliation at the hands of, of you know, a variety of different powers in the 1800s, um, you know, in the 1900s. 
and that the Communist Party is essentially going to deliver the Chinese nation to um, a restoration of its power. So as Xinhua News Agency said, um, you know, 200 years after the Opium Wars, China is set to um, reascend to the top of the world. And then as Xi Jinping puts it, backed by the invincible force of 1.3 billion people, we have an infinite stage for our era. So what this means really is when China's leaders and analysts and other people talk about something called comprehensive national power, which is an aggregation of economic power, military power, I think they use the idea of cultural power, um, you know, technological power, it's all meant to, to say what a nation can do. And China, the goal here um, on their side is to build a nation that is, is um, frankly, you know, well ahead of any other country. And in real terms, I think um, if current trends continue, we would see China surpassing the United States economically within the next decade. Um, you know, that provides a, a foundation that would be uh, unparalleled in the world. Um, you know, the military contests that are underway, whether that's in dual-use artificial intelligence or quantum computing or robotics or all sorts of next-generation, um, you know, systems, you know, all of these things are taking shape now, and the, and the Communist Party has set its, um, its eye on a variety of different objectives that would allow it to become a superpower um, and one that would ultimately outmaneuver the United States. You quote in the beginning of the book, and you mentioned just now some estimates in terms of China's GDP becoming larger than in that United States by 2030, uh, if not actually earlier. Uh, given the fact that um, uh, China experts such as George Magnus, among others, have questioned the reliability and the accuracy of uh, those GDP numbers, in essence saying that the uh, PRC engages in <clears throat> double, if not triple, bookkeeping in terms of uh, considerable padding of Chinese growth estimates. How, in fact, plausible uh, is that uh, date of 2030? I think it depends on many factors. And, and to me, this is um, you know, something that I think hopefully will not happen. Um, if, if it did turn out, and we all know that the the... National Bureau of Statistics um, numbers are, are not, you know, reliable. I mean, there's, there is a lot of book cooking when it comes to statistics and economic statistics in China. Um, however, you, you also have many other, um, you know, people that are measuring this economy. It's not just macroeconomists. It's from a variety of different, you know, large investment funds and such. And, you know, what people are looking at here, I mean, there's a, there's a great debate over as to the huge size of China's economy, but there's no doubt that it is um, quite a large economy. And you have um, estimates everywhere from the National Intelligence Council to the World Economic Forum, maintaining that you know to, to UBS, maintaining this idea that China is on track to surpass the United States. So um, you know it's an idea that I think um, has come into the mainstream as much as it might be being questioned by individual economists. Um, you know, there's this very mainstream idea that China will ultimately become the largest economy, and I want to point out the danger of that path. Um, that is not strategically a good thing for us to wind up in a world where China's defense budgets are double what they are, where its global reach is quite larger than what it might be. So a lot of this, I think, from a strategic counterpoint, is the, the need to win the economic competition with China. Um, and the other thing is when people are purely measuring economic statistics, they're missing 
um, what's happening across the industrial picture around the world. I mean, that's something that we study at my consultancy. And, you know, what you have with all these goals that underpin the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, industrial goals such as Made in China 2025, which seeks mastery of 10 different strategic industries from next generation ICT to robotics to um, you know, advanced shipping, aerospace. In China, it is succeeding on a number of fronts. And, um, you know, that China's share of the Fortune Global 500 has, you know, this is a major um, turning point that I think people don't don't really pay attention to. Um, Ten years ago, there were very few companies um, from China on the list. Now there are nearly as many as the United States. Um, so you look at something like Huawei, which has outcompeted every other telecommunications firm in 5G. Um, I mean, they went from a $4 billion uh, revenue stream um, in 2014 to a $100 billion revenue stream. And this is done with the assistance of the Chinese state because it's done with the assistance of, of the Chinese state bank. So it's a much more complex picture, I think, than many macroeconomists understand. You really have to be watching the companies and the industries and the sectors to know what's going on. And it's also the place, like, if you watch those things, you can start to see how we can compete. Um, it's not simply competing against a growth rate. It's competing against an entire economy that's filled with companies and banks and such. And, you know, you can find many advantages, I think. But the United States is not yet thinking, um, despite the trade war, not yet thinking strategically about economic competition with China. And that's where we need to be, and it's also where our allies need to be. You know how inadvertently in the book accepted face value the PRC's erroneous uh, view of uh, uh, 18th, 19th century, 20th century for that matter, Chinese history. I'm thinking in particular of the idea of the, what I think the phrase is, 100 years of humiliation. Because the first generation of Chinese nationalists, I'm thinking people like Dr. Sun Yat-sen, for them, of course, uh, the Humiliation of China began not in uh, 1839 or 1838 or 1859 or 60, uh, but in fact in 1644 when the Manchus uh, conquered uh, Peking and thereafter affected a, uh, a Manchu regime in China, uh, the mark of which was, and this is something which I'm sure you know, that's not very well known other than by Chinese uh, academic specialists, is, of course, the fact that every Han Chinese male under the Manchus had to wear a pigtail as a mark mm -hmm. of their subservience to the Manchus. And, of course, from the PR, PRC's perspective, uh, this is all not acknowledged uh, for the, due to the, fact, the following fact, and correct me if I'm wrong. If you argue that, as, say, Dr. Sun Yat-sen probably would argue if he were alive today, that the Manchus were um, the beginning of China's humiliation. And actually, if you, you there was a quote in the beginning of the book uh, where he gives a timeline. That timeline, he says, is 500 years going back when China's uh, civilization was prime. That takes him all the way back to the Ming Dynasty. But the, the issue for the PRC, of course, is that if you write out as a negative experience, the Manchu uh, regime, then you also have to, of course, write out uh, the fact that it was the Manchus who brought Xianqing, Tibet, and even, for that matter, Manchuria, uh, under the rule of Peking. And if you argue that the Manchus were a non-Han non Chinese uh, regime, uh, in essence, a foreign regime, 
you uh, undermine the legitimacy of the PRC's rule over those three sections of the country, which I think added together are anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of the landmass of the current People's Republic. Yeah, I mean, as the historian Peter Perdue, um, you know, writes, I mean, on, in his Chronicles of China's Marches West, he calls it, you know, there's a contradiction that exists in China today, which is China, you know, many people do not want their imperial past, but they do want China's present borders. So if you're talking about the Manchu conquest of Xinjiang, um, the reconquest of Tibet, I mean, these are all things that today's, um, you know, Chinese leaders and citizens and, and all sorts of people, and, and those that were serving directly under Sun Yat-sen, I mean, Chiang Kai-shek calls Xinjiang and Tibet and Manchuria, you know, part of the fortresses that defend the heartland of China. So this, this sense of where the whole thing comes from, I think, has, has a variety of contradictions. And of course, for the Communist Party, control of the past is incredibly important to them. Um, I say this as someone who worked in Chinese archives during my PhD and was there when they were all shut to the world permanently. Um, you know, which was a, a great blow to scholars working on modern China. Um, and then, on the other hand, um, you know, the, the way that they run history today, I, th I think um, it, it's meant to conveniently set up the um, 1949 founding of the People's Republic of China when Mao Zedong declares that the Chinese people have stood up as the beginning of the end of the century of humiliation. And then the other bookend to that is the centenary of that founding in 2049, when China's leaders today say that the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation will be complete. So they've given themselves this time frame that's built on a sense of history that essentially um, says that, that China was um, you know, a very powerful nation that was laid low by other nations, and now it will restore itself, and the Communist Party will do that. And, and then you know, there's another side to it, too, which is... Um, Young people, I mean, people my age and their, um, you know, the, the Baling Ho and such, the, the ones that were born after the 80s, um, we grew up in this thing called the Patriotic Education Program, which was instituted after the Tiananmen Square Massacre. I mean, we had the anniversary of, 30th anniversary of the massacre two days ago. And, um, you know, this, this is meant to teach young people that the West is the enemy and Japan is the enemy and that this entire narrative of national humiliation is. It's really the centerpiece of Chinese history, so that young people won't be turning against the party, but will rather be turning against the West. And we're seeing all that rhetoric. Um, you know, that was stuff that I had to live with when I was meeting people my age all over China. Um, and, you know, these are people who very much um, have strong views of Tibet and the South China Sea and, and Xinjiang and such. And, and, and the idea that that was brought to them by Manchu, um, you know, people, I think, it was, is not in consideration. And, and also, one has to remember that many of the dynasties that ruled China, I mean, the Yuan dynasty, which essentially um, you know, had, a, had a major effect on, on China's uh, power in its own region, was, was also not, um, not Han. So, so there's a very complex history here. Um, I, I have met very few people that, um, that think of, that think of uh, the, the, uh, the Qing dynasty as, as, as terribly foreign. Um, and of course, there, you know, many people would say that there's a great pride in China's ability to absorb um, other places and have them become Chinese culturally or civilizationally. Um, and, and when Xi Jinping and, and others talk about the 5,000 years of history and the, the greatness of the Chinese civilization, they're, they're certainly not leaving out um, the Qing or Yuan dynasties. I mean, it's meant to be a continuous uh, role of, of, of um, 
say that uh, much of the so-called new China nationalism is really a product of the current regime's need for an ideology to replace uh, Maoism or communism? I think it's part of that. I mean, it certainly predates them. Um, I mean, you know, there are really two forces, I think, that matter politically in China, and one is the Communist Party and the other is Chinese nationalism. Um, and it, an entertaining question for China scholars is, did the Communist Party create Chinese nationalism or did Chinese nationalism create the Communist Party? And of course, Mao grew up in the May 4th movement, which was, um, you know, far predates, I mean, it predates the Communist Party in China even. Um, and this was a movement where after the, the end of the First World War, um, you know, there had been Chinese participation in this war on the Allied side, on the Winning side. And um, it, in the end, it, things were handed off to other people in ways that were considered highly unjust. There were riots all over Beijing. Um, you know, and, and this was one of the key narratives that said, look, we've been humiliated. We continue to be humiliated. And for Mao, this was an important moment. And, and I believe for, for Chiang Kai-shek and others too, I mean, there's there's a deep sense of bringing China back onto the world stage that predates the communist, well, that predates communist power in China. Of course, the Republic of China, Sun Yat-sen, and, and even in the hands of those that were allies of the United States. I mean, Chiang Kai-shek was a major ally for America in the um, Second World War, and we, we have to remember that there is this period where um, where you have China trying to get back on its feet and firmly aligning itself with the United States. And you know, I was very recently in Taiwan, and one one sees all the sort of uh, reminders of that, that, that you know, Chiang was, was our friend. And, um, you know, so, so, so China's destiny is far from certain, I think. Um, you know, Taiwan provides an important reminder as to what um, a democratic um, system looks like um, over there. And, you know, but, but I do think that the current generation in um, in the People's Republic of China, the mainland is is undergoing sort of unprecedented, you know, technological repression. I mean, you have the social credit system is coming up, the surveillance system, the use of advanced technologies from AI to big data to to um, sort of catch up, as some people put, with the Communist Party's original vision of societal control. Uh, and these are all tough things for for people to live under. And and on the other side of it is this narrative of China versus the world. And we're starting to see that seep into the trade war, which at this point is being blamed firmly on the United States, regardless of the fact that in many ways it's a reaction to um, all kinds of, you know, bad trade practices from China over the last 20 years. Um, so, so the idea that you can accept no fault of your own, I think, is deeply embedded in this narrative of humiliation and restoration. And it's a very dangerous narrative, and we've seen other countries do it in the past. It doesn't end well. We discussed that great link in the book. China's global maritime aspirations. In light of such aspirations, exactly how many uh, aircraft carriers and naval bases does China possess, and how many as compared to, say, the USA? Sure. At present, um, you know, it, it's been said to me by, by good naval analysts that China has produced the equivalent of the entire Japanese maritime self-defense force in the last four years alone. Um, IISS just came out with um, you know, a report that was saying essentially China has, has, has produced recently the equivalent of the entire British Navy, you know, several other European navies. Um, China is now considered uh, by specialists the world's you know, 
most powerful maritime power other than the United States itself. When it comes to basing and carriers, which on some level are, are a measure, I mean, the carriers, I think, on some level are a measure of last century's maritime power. Uh, what really counts here on the Chinese side is, is the anti-aircraft, area, or rather anti-access area denial um, kit that they're putting all around the West Pacific. It's meant to deny entry to any such carrier. Um, you know, they're working I think, past the United States for, for um, you know, other systems such as uh, swarming systems. I mean, they're focused on undersea. They're focused on churning out destroyers, um, all sorts of, of things, and, and building their submarine force. I believe they just had their their test of their first um, submarine launch nuclear missile. Um, just just uh, it wasn't a nuclear launch, I believe, but tested the thing. And um, you know, so so they're building American power, and it's meant to fill in this picture of um, with the South China Sea as a fundamental base that allows them to go out into what Chinese economic strategists call um, three blue economic uh, corridors. And one is meant to go through the Northern Sea Route. Of course, China recently you know, has declared itself a near-Arctic power um, and has ambitions of connecting to Europe through the Northern Sea Route. The other is through the Indian Ocean, which is where I think the heart of strategic competition is going to happen in the Indian Ocean. China's waging a two-front strategic competition, one with the United States in the West Pacific, and the other with India, um, and to some extent, the United States in the Indian Ocean region. And then, of course, through the South Pacific, where China's loans to, to smaller nations and such, whether it's, I believe, Vanuatu and, and others, um, you know, present the, a huge possibility for dual use. So really what you have, in terms of overseas bases, I mean, they, they at present only have Djibouti, they're there, um, you know, there's talk of Jawani at, at Pakistan, but what you do have is China port building and port operations control all around the world. And the question of whether or not those turn into dual use facilities as we move forward is an important one because we have to remember that Chinese strategy is not about what's happening today. It's about setting the stage so that the next decade, China's beginning to fill in its power in all the regions that are critical to its broader ascendancy around the world. So when we're measuring carriers today, where China is now building its third, and the U.S. has 10, but remember, the U.S. is a global um, navy, and China's concentrated for military purposes on the West Pacific, on Taiwan and the island chains, South and East China Seas, and potential conflict with the United States or Japan or India to that extent, maybe other smaller nations. So um, this, is, this is not yet um, filled out. On the other hand, their navy is growing more quickly than anything on Earth, and it's mostly concentrated in systems that are meant for sort of um, regional use rather than the blue water side, which they are building. But that's still, um, I think, a longer way off. Now, estimates going out to 2030 are much larger. I mean, many people would say that they're planning to have six or ten carriers overall, but again, the carrier is not necessarily the world's most important military system. And what really matters is their ability to build economic relations with all these countries, which is a, a different sort of form of influence um, than having a base here or there. And if you add ports that are built or owned or controlled by China, I mean, all across the Indian Ocean region, I mean, you've got Ambantota in Sri Lanka, where they've taken a 99-year lease on a port that they built when the country was indebted. Um, you know, Karachi, Gwadar, um, I think East Africa is going to start to look... Um, you know, interesting. Then Greece, Piraeus, and, and there, there's a whole series of um, pieces to China becoming a maritime power. And the Navy, in many ways, is, is the, the place that's uh, 
to catch up with the rest of the picture over time. Given the purges which took place not so many years ago in both the PLA and the Chinese Navy in their high command, how do you rate them both quality-wise? Um, I'm not a, a. I mean, there are, there are real specialists in in Chinese training and, and officer corps and things of that nature. So, so that is that's really not my field. On the other hand, um, it seems to be as as we watch the quantity go up and we ask about the quality. Um, it's really quantity, quality, and training are three metrics that that matter here in assessing the force. And um, you know, there's there's more that's revealed about what's been stolen from the United States and other nations um, in terms of military technology. I mean, hacking that's gone on in a variety of major defense contractors, and you know, um, and there's some good articles out there about the hacking that's been happening um, on naval contractors and subcontractors. Um, so the question of America's military edge is, you know, it's, it's I think a great concern. I mean, are both Russia and China catching up to us? So that's a real problem. Um, and then the quantity. I mean, I think that's that's um, there's a, a whole lot going on there, and you know, destroyers and frigates and what have you. And then um, you know they're moving forward very quickly there. And then in terms of training, it's uh, you know they've modeled now a joint force on the United States, which is a level of interoperability between the, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force that, that is, takes time. So, and, and then maneuvering a carrier, for example. I mean, these things take you know, time. So, so I think that may be their weakest point. Many people sort of assume that it's their weakest point, but they're also accelerating their, their training. They've started to do um, artificial intelligence-based, um, you know, red team, blue team training at, I think, um, you know, lower and lower level units um, in order to improve the, the quality and readiness of their force. It's certainly something that Xi Jinping is focused on when he says that China must prepare to fight and win wars. I mean, a lot of that is about creating training programs. I and mean, you see in the Air Force, for example, these competitions that are meant to train their best pilots that are on some level modeled on Top Gun. So, um, so they're working hard at this, I think. There's a great deal of um, being written about this now. And I think people have taken it for granted for a long time um, if, if China is not, let's say, well-trained, but that's, that's something they certainly understand in part that's true in the training. How realistic is the Made in China 2025 project? I think that depends. On, yeah, the, the, realistic, um, the realism of Made in China 2025 depends a great deal on what the world does in response to Made in China 2025. And I think that that is probably one of the main um, reasons that you have the breakdown um, and disruption of trading relations with the United States. That as you know, people catch on to China's industrial policies and ambitions, and it really sets all the years of technology transfer and industrial espionage into a context that says, you know, this, this has goals. This isn't just a practice. This has absolute goals. And the idea is for China to become you know, dominant in all these industries. Um, there was a fantastic paper written by Merricks in Germany that was about this, that, that measured the sort of dangers of this program, and then others written by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I think these all probably played a role in new decision-making on trade. Um, and in the end, will they achieve this? Well, it's going to be harder if the world starts to push back on how they do it, because so much of Made in China 2025, in fact, relies on continuous engagement with the developed world. 
So China's, um, you know, economic strategists and propagandists call this economic globalization. And the idea is that China must retain its position as, as having a great deal of contact with the developed economies so that it continue, it can continue to gain, um, technology. So in many ways, this is sort of the equivalent of Meiji Japan saying, look, we're going to update ourselves and begin to compete with, with the European powers and with the United States. In this case with China, what's happening is that this is about downloading or stealing or, or otherwise gaining possession of advanced technologies and, and, and ways of creating innovation within their own system through contact with the rest of the world. So I, th- I think that there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. But nonetheless, it's an important national program with a great deal of detail. There are many sub-strategies to Made in China 2025. And, um, you know, nonetheless, it's going to be disruptive because you're orienting Chinese industrial policy a number of sectors, and whether they succeed at their maximal goals, which I think is unlikely, or whether they don't succeed, it's going to disrupt a lot of industries and make them strong. You seem to imply that there is very little difference between Chinese state-owned enterprises and private companies. Why is that? Well, I think there, there is a difference. I mean, on one hand, a state-owned enterprise is out there, you know, fully subject to the state and to... Um, you know, its goals. I mean, you see state-owned enterprises, for instance, where the, where the places that we're building the South China Sea Islands and such, and, and now we're building ports and such in the Indian Ocean. Um, on the other hand, you know, part of what I explain in the book is the history of, um, you know, China opening its, it, to its entrepreneurs in order to bring them on side, you know, and, and this, you know, through, through a variety of great scholars who've, who've prepared that work has sort of included them in this sort of discussion um, chapter of, of how China's economy is getting to where it is. And, um, you know, the Communist Party saw it as essential to bring, they would need their entrepreneurs to, they would need their businesses in order to grow, in order to achieve these broader goals of industrialization and modernization. On the other hand, as those goals um, are succeeding, I mean, you're talking about a country that now has over 100 uh, companies on the Fortune 500, you know, three of the top 10 brands in the world by value. Are, are Chinese now? This, I mean, this was not the story when China began to um, bring its entrepreneurs in. And we start to hear that, you know, Jack Ma is a member of the Communist Party. I mean, certainly Ren Zhengfei is deeply embedded in the Communist Party. Um, you know, there are Communist Party cells um, in, in so many companies that call themselves private or that are private. And the party's control of its entrepreneurs and business community um, is, is incredibly important to them. Now, whether those companies can go and serve the goals of the state is another subject. On the other hand, certain policies like civil-military fusion, which is one of the most important policies happening in China today, civil-military fusion is that any form of, inf- of innovation happening in the private sector must be brought to the Chinese military. Things like this illustrate the importance of um, you know, party interaction with its, with its private sector. I mean, you have a place like Baidu, which is not a state-owned enterprise. Um, which is assisting the Chinese military on advanced command and control. So there are so many levers that they have to influence, um, make use of, or otherwise guide, and probably, if necessary, control um, their private sector, to say nothing of their SOEs, which absolutely do exist under state control. So we have to understand the system, think of it as an ecosystem that has a variety of different pieces to it, um, but which, at the end of the day, all of which are increasingly um, and I say increasingly because 10 years ago, you might have asked yourself, you know, there could be another 
past for China where the party has less influence over things that are happening privately. But today, I think they're consolidating that influence to the best of their ability. How do you view the Trump administration's overall China policy? I, I think that what you have very generally in the United States right now, uh, this, this is my opinion, but is the you know at a professional level. So leaving aside the administration, um, at the level of professionals and strategic studies in the military, um, in all sorts of other places that have to think about the world and think about American security, whether it's economic or military or otherwise, um, you have the beginning of a, a, a real consideration of where is the United States going in a time of major power competition. And what this means is that for 70 years, we've had grand strategy that served us well. I mean, all the way through, you know, post the Second World War, through the Cold War, um, there was a, an American system that, that delivered essentially an Many would say an unprecedented period of uh, relative peace and prosperity, including, which of course was highly beneficial to China. And um, today it, it's, it's something that has to be thought through again. I mean, what does the world really look like given the current circumstances with the return of major powers? And I think that at a strategic level, if you look at documents like the National Security Strategy or the, um, the unclassified briefing of the National Defense Strategy or the Indo-Pacific Strategy, which was released just this week by the Pentagon, you're starting to sharpen the you know, sharpening of the American concept of what we're up against. And it really has to do with um, you know, the return of Russian belligerence, um, the rise of China and its ambitions to alter the world system and confront the United States. And I think this administration, um, wherever it comes from, has, uh, has been um, very strategic on this. And you can see that in the documents that you know, eventually we'll all be reading as historians as you see the shift of America's policy from engage but hedge to compete. So, so that's been incredibly significant. You know, the trade war captures all the attention, but um, beneath that is, is this deep and important strategic reorientation that most people are, are quite unaware of, I would say, but it's, it's very neatly expressed in many public documents now. That's been important. Would you say that there's been a change of front from uh, major players in Sino-American relations on the American side, I'm thinking people like Henry Kissinger, Hank Paulson, or for that matter, Elizabeth Economy, uh, now sort of uh, going back on their earlier belief that the rise of China was on balance a good thing? I think there has been a shift. And I think we have to remember that the architects of our engagement with China were people that did not even speak the language, whether it's Henry Kissinger or Hank Paulson or what have you. Um, I mean, these, these are people that are working from a handful of different, um, what do you call it, just sort of wishful ambitions. I mean, Henry Kissinger was aiming to make China into a balancer to the USSR, obviously, and that did work to an extent. Um, but he was trained um, both as a historian and as a statesman in the Westphalian School of International Order, which said that, you know, essentially a, a system of powers that can balance each other. And this, this, as John K. Fairbank points out, is rooted in, in a deeper tradition of Europe being essentially a system of states of equal power, relatively equal power, who could balance each other. So Kissinger is essentially trying to apply, um, you know, diplomacy with, with the roots in, in the competition between European states to to um, to China, which doesn't have a conception of itself that has anything to do with that. As Fairbank points out, China's 
vision of, of its role in the world was very different from Westphalia. It was superordination and subordination. It was the largest entity in its entire region, and therefore everything else existed as satellites, as vassal states, and that was the Chinese system before it had contact with Western empires. So for Kissinger to go and apply this in the Cold War and then let it run on um, you know, too long as China you know, on the other side of this is looking to, um, you know, to ascend in the world and to restore its position to, to its former power and not simply to become you know, another piece of an international system. Um, I, I think that that was smart at its time, but it went on for way too long and it wasn't checked. It was sort of engaged, don't verify and then Henry Paulson, who I think, you know, comes to this from a place of, you know, idealism that is, is not founded in understanding. Um, you know, when he says um, at the beginning of, of, you know, very recently, he's talking about an economic iron curtain coming up in the world. And he's also somebody um, who said to the world, right? Um, Said, there's this myth that some of us who worked to engage China thought it would become a Jeffersonian democracy or espouse a liberal Western order. We never thought that. We always knew the Communist Party would play an important, dominant role. Um, I mean, this is some, you know, the thing we tell ourselves now is that engagement was meant to have China liberalized and become a friend to the United States and a partner in the international order. Obviously, that has not happened. I think there's very little discussion at this point of whether or not that's happening. And that's whether that's the South China Sea, whether that's Xi Jinping calling for war, whether that's the internment of, you know, one to three million Uyghurs in concentration camps. I mean, this this moment was was um, people did not know what they were doing, and and I think Henry Paulson to me reminds me in some ways of of the latest McCartney, and, and McCartney went to China and said, "We want to trade with you," and they said, "We don't want your manufacturers. Um, your your we don't need your." Ingenious manufacturers, I believe. There's always been this Western idea of going to China, whether it was Marco Polo who was looking for China, whether it was Christopher Columbus who was looking for the route to China. And, and to me, um, Paulson reminds me of that in a way, because I think he has this idea that we can open and trade, and it's built entirely on economics and nothing to do with national security. And, and, and you know, it's just, it's not what happens. And at the end of the day, what China is looking for is a form of self-sufficiency, um, you know, economic and industrial self-sufficiency, while also maintaining a superior level of power over anything near it. And today in a globalized world, that, that is a global thing, it's not just a regional thing. So in essence, you would say even at the time, this goes back to 2007, 2008, there was this Bush administration official, I believe he was a deputy secretary of state, and later president of the World Bank, but a portion whose name I don't recall, who was speaking about China as being a, quote, responsible stakeholder. Oh, Bob Zellick, sure. Even at that time, I think, am I correct in assuming that you believe that was um, a mistaken view of what China was willing to do in terms of conforming to international norms? I Yeah, well, look, I, I think that we um, we never asked or we never discovered what China's leaders were really trying to do. And I think on some level, there's been a long track towards a clear goal, which is the restoration of, of Chinese power, um, which should have been understood. And, and then 
it's up to those who would understand it to take it seriously or not. And I think that even if we did understand it, we might not have taken it seriously, which would have been a mistake as well. Um, and by the time you get to the year 2007, I mean, in that speech about the responsible stakeholder, um, you know, Robert Zellick is talking about, um, he's talking about all the same issues we're talking about today. I mean, technology transfer first, um, from what I recall, you, you know, the question of will China actually become a responsible stakeholder? Are they going to abuse the rules of the WTO, et cetera? Um, you know, it, it had, at that point, China was also working on military systems that today have reshaped the balance of the uh, Western Pacific. So all of this was happening. You know, Made in China 2025's uh, origins are in programs that are in, you know, date to about 2006, 2007. If we'd really been good at this, we would have understood it. And then we could have asked ourselves, well, where is this really going? What do we want to do? But instead, we've brought ourselves to a strategic crisis at this point because it has run on for so long. And they've, you know, the Chinese leaders have been so successful at, in, at, at you know, moving their plans ahead that at this point they can challenge the United States for, for global leadership. And that's, that's an extraordinary situation that, um, you know, I think few in policy circles could have envisaged in 2005 or six or seven. Um, however, I think another piece of this that's incredibly important is the human rights side. And I say this as someone who was traveling in China as, as a very young person in 2006 and seven, you know, in Tibet, in Xinjiang. I mean, the fact that these places were taken out of the narrative, I think, for, for policymaking or strategy, when in fact our values are so, have to be so important to our foreign policy. And the human rights abuses in China, um, I think were not factored into what the rise really meant. And on the other side, I mean, China, of course, was managing the West very well. They were saying the peaceful rise of China and, you know, we will be a responsible stakeholder and all this stuff, which, of course, um, disguises and masks many of the intentions. And this all, I think, is derived from Deng Xiaoping, sort of hide your brightness, bide your time. So to me, the continuities in China's um, sort of leader to leader ambitions are this idea of the new China, China has stood up the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. The thing that's different where there's variance is the degree to which a Chinese leader is willing to take on other major powers in their contest. Mao, of course, was willing to confront both superpowers at once. Henry Kissinger has said that he thought that was so extraordinary it sounded like he almost admired it. Um, you know, Hu Jintao, not so much. I mean, he's, he's not going to do that. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, not so much. He was building the economy. Xi Jinping, you know, talking about preparing to fight and win wars. Um, you know, making military threats to, to many of his neighbors, um, willing to take on the United States rhetorically and calling for uh, all sorts of things. So, so you know, I, I think that's, that's a variance. And if we had truly understood this country, I mean, America, I think, comes late to the game when it comes to um, foreign powers. Obviously, we were deeply absorbed in, um, you know, counterterrorism around the world. I think that was taking up much of the energy of the national security community. And on the other side of it, the economic community was out in China, you know, exploring the market, getting situated there in a way that, you know, kept the whole relationship going. And at a certain point, the relationship became, just took on a life of its own. People are saying, oh, the most important thing is the U.S.-China relationship. We have to keep this going. And nobody was asking what's happening. What are the results? So, so many mistakes were made. But, but in the end, all, you know, what matters is where we go from here. How do you rate Chinese soft power overall? Well, I, I think it's the kind of thing where it's not the same. It's not a values-based soft power, but it is an economics-based soft power. So we like to say that America is ally-rich and China is ally-poor, 
well. They have these things called strategic partnerships that, that you know, borders of countries around the world have signed up to. I mean, the fact that we're having a debate over Huawei with our closest ally in Britain because Britain is keen for economic engagement with China. I mean, that's soft power. Not that they want um, the system of the Communist Party, but they do want you know trade and engagement. So, so China, I think, has, a, has an incredible amount of um, non-military power. It is highly effective. Um, it's disruptive to U.S. alliances, and it, and it certainly makes the rest of the world a very contested space. And the U.S. right now doesn't have an economic response to China. Um, so, so, so they are the only ones playing that game, I think. And that's dangerous. And in your conclusion, you state that the USA and its allies in the democratic world uh, overall still have the whip hand vis-a-vis China, but that unless the U.S. begins to have a national strategy vis-a-vis China in the fashion that, say, we, you could argue we had one towards the Soviet Union with NSC-68 and George Kennan's uh, original concept of containment, um, unless we have something akin to that uh, vis-a-vis the PRC, that the American position, democratic world's position vis-a-vis China could... Um, could um, suffer a considerable amount of um, uh, weakness in the years ahead. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. I mean, I, I think the solution to this situation is the unity of the democratic world, which makes up 65% of the global economy. Um, you know, it, it retains all the, the truly sort of advanced stages of, of, of technology. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many advantages. But the democratic world is not really a unit anymore. I mean, it was during the Cold War. I mean, there was a real contest between communism and and, and the free world. And, and right now we're talking about an integrated system in which um, authoritarian nations are able to gain um, many of the goods that are developed in, um, in free societies and you know, the innovations that, that come from those societies. Now, China is innovative too. But at the end of the day, um, a great deal of what they do relies on access to, to the rest of the world um, and to the advanced industrial nations. So um, I think what what I'm talking about is very different from containment. I mean, containment thought, um, you know, had had its own goal. But what I really mean here is that the world has to start to rebuild this uh, free and rules-based order and this international system that is sustained by the powers of the democracies. And it has to be rebuilt in such a way that is far less dependent on authoritarian China than it is today. I mean, right now, so many supply chains go through there, so much exchange. I mean, all the wealth that's created in China um, that, that's then, you know, repurposed for military purposes, among other things. I mean, these are features of the fact that we're treating it as an economic center. It's becoming an economic center because we want it to. And um, that is based on 20 years without thinking about the political or strategic consequences. Now we are forced, forced to think. So I think that there's an enormous amount of potential in the democratic world, which is not being realized because we're so distracted by um, China's economy, by its economic capabilities. But at the end of the day, this engagement has deep and serious consequences um, because what it leads to is the creation of a Chinese world order. It's not going to lead to something different than that. And, you know, I think that we're right now um, talking about the branches and not the roots. And and the branches say, okay, so we're going to have this um, sort of long-term engagement and you know, we're just going to deal with the national security consequences of a continuous rise towards not only reaching our size, but eventually potentially uh, surpassing the United States. And then this is just, to me, so misguided. I think in the end, um, what it really is about is 
making sure that we're building ourselves, we're building each other in the democracies. And there's so many um, exciting democracies. I mean, you're talking about everything from Japan to India to Australia to Indonesia to, you know, to, to Britain and France and Germany and Israel. I mean, there's an extraordinary range of places that I think are not yet really working together, not yet really coordinated on global strategic issues as opposed to regional issues. I think if we can achieve that, we're not going to worry as much about what the authoritarians have in mind. We have to get to a point where we can ask the fundamental first principles question of what is engagement really leading to? Um, why are we continuing to go there? And how can we do something differently, not for the sake of containing China, but for the sake of building the world that we were trying to build until it was interrupted by the rise of authoritarianism in the 21st century, which few people saw as, as possible. I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Ward, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Pacquiao. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Ward. Thank you, Charles.